Uh, in case you missed it last week, we started a new series called Rebuilding. Um, and it's just a, a series we're going to spend the bulk of our fall kind of going through the book of, of Nehemiah. That's kind of the plan, Lord willing. Uh, and so one of the things that's going to be really clear over the next several weeks is that the book of Nehemiah is uh, really about Nehemiah rebuilding kind of the wall around Jerusalem, the city where they worshiped. Uh, and so uh, it, it's going to, that's what the, the book is. You're going to see at a surface level is Nehemiah rebuilding uh, the city and the walls and the structures and, and all that as this remnant uh, of exiled, uh, exiled Jewish people come back to the city of Jerusalem. So, uh, but, but underneath that, so that's like surface level what's going on. Underneath that, uh, what Nehemiah is, is doing, what we'll see in the next few weeks is that he's not just rebuilding a city. He's also rebuilding a people. Right, this is a people that have been broken. We talked about that last week uh, because of their sin and their disobedience. Like they are a broken, vulnerable people. Uh, and what we're going to see as we go deeper and deeper into the book is not only is Nehemiah restoring this physical city, he's restoring this people to the right worship of the God whom they had disobeyed and, and rebelled against. Okay, And so the reason I bring that up is we're going to see we're going to get a little bit of an introduction to that uh, this morning as, as uh, we look at Nehemiah's prayer. So if you have your Bibles open and ready, we're going to start. Uh, I'm actually going to jump back up to verse 4. That gives a little context, but then uh, the bulk of our time this morning will be in verses 5 through 11. So as we've been doing, I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. And I'll start reading in Nehemiah 1 verse 4. Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, and those words were that uh, the people in the city that had returned were in trouble. He said, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant now that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying... If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your, hear be, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. You can go ahead and have a seat. Um, so one of the things that uh, I find interesting, I don't know if you've ever been around someone that knows how to pray like really well. Right? And when I, like, when I say they know how to pray really well, like, I don't mean they pray in like King James English. Nothing wrong with that. Okay? But I mean like, 
I don't know if you've ever been in the, like, the same place with somebody who like, prays in such a way that when they pray, like, the room feels different. All right, but that is a, it's a pretty powerful, unique experience, right? And, and like, I don't feel like I pray that way. So like, when I'm in that environment, what happens is I like, you're around somebody that like, clearly like, they are prayer warriors or whatever you want to call them. Like, they just know how to pray. Uh, and what happens is um, like, like, all of a sudden I start to feel a little insecure about the way that I pray, right? Now listen, here, theologically, prayer is prayer. Okay, I know that. Prayer is not about your vocabulary. Prayer is not about um, you know, the, the emotion or zeal that you bring to your prayer, right? It's, it's not about the length of your prayer. Like, prayer is prayer. You talk to God, God hears, and he listens, okay? Um, prayer is prayer. But, um, like, when you're around someone that, like, knows how to pray, one of the things that I find happens is all of a sudden I'm like, my prayers feel kind of lame, Right? And so what happens is I can look at this other person and be like, you know what, I need to pray like that. That's what I need to do. I just need to uh, kind of copy and paste that into my own prayer life, and maybe I'll be a person that prays in a way that makes the room feel like it's different. Um, and listen, there's nothing wrong with following the example of others. Right? Matthew 6, Jesus gives his disciples this example of how to pray. Right? So there's nothing wrong with following the examples uh, of others. It's, that's not what I'm saying, but... Um, like the easy thing to do for me this morning was to look, would be to look at this prayer that Nehemiah prays and say like, hey, Nehemiah knows how to pray. You should be like Nehemiah, pray like Nehemiah, and us leave here. Okay, but I don't think that's going to be most helpful for us this morning. Okay, and so where I'm going with this, I want you to think about your own, like think about your own relationships, your own conversations with people my, I'm willing to bet that the people, think about specifically the people you have the deepest, most consistent relationships with or most consistent conversations with, right? The people who like your conversations go like deep, right? And not only do they go deep, but like you, you talk a lot, right? Somebody that maybe you're just constantly in contact with throughout the day. My guess is you didn't arrive at that sort of depth and consistency in conversation by looking at someone else in their relationship and being like, you know what, I need some of that here. I'm just going to start doing that in my relationships. And I'm willing to bet that the people that you have the deepest relationships with, the people that you have the deepest conversations with, the people that you talk to most consistently throughout your day or throughout your week, are people that, that you have grown in your understanding and your knowledge of. Right? You, you know them, and they know you. Right? And there's a depth of relationship there that just kind of naturally produces conversation. It just sort of naturally produces uh, consistency in conversation. Right? And, and this, is, this is kind of like the, the same thing with God. Okay? I, I'm just convinced that like, if we're going to talk about praying with more depth and more consistency... Like, I don't think it's going to work for me to tell you to look at somebody else and be like, hey, pray like them. Like, I don't, I don't think that helps us that much. But what I do think helps is that if we grow in our understanding, grow in our knowledge of who God is, grow like, in that, like that relationship grows in, in depth, then I think what happens is sort of a natural 
uh, outpouring of that relationship is that we pray like deeper, we pray more consistently, like our prayer life changes. Not because we've looked at somebody else and been like, oh, I should be like that, but because we've looked at God and be like, I want to know him more. All right, so here's what I want to do this morning. Here's, here's my plan. I want to take Nehemiah's prayer here, verses 5 through 11, and, and just kind of want to look at it through the lens of this question. What does Nehemiah's prayer tell us about God? Or how can we grow in our understanding and knowledge of who God is and what he is like based on Nehemiah's prayer? All right, so I've got five points this morning. I know that might freak some of you out because one, I rarely have points, okay? Two, I preach for like 40 minutes on no points, so what's gonna happen if I have five of them, right? I know, some of you are like, I didn't pack a lunch for that. It'll be fine, all right? There'll be quick hitters, quick hitting sermon points. And if not, listen, we're gonna leave here and there's gonna be cookies and stuff outside and no one's ever been upset while eating a cookie, okay? So here's my first point, number one. God keeps his promises. All right, look back at the text, verse 5. It says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, catch this, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. I want to emphasize the word covenant. All right, that's a significant word. It's a, it's a biblical word. Uh, in this context, refers to the sort of uh, binding agreement that God has made with his people. Okay, we, uh, we know the word contract. A contract is like, you know, one party does their part, and as long as that party does what they've agreed to do, then the other party will uphold their end of the deal. All right, well, a covenant is not a contract. Right? A covenant is uh, God saying to his people, hey, I'm, I'm binding myself to you. Uh, I am, like, I'm in regardless of your response. All right, that's what covenant is. And, and so what we see here from Nehemiah's prayer is, is that God keeps his covenant. He keeps his promises with his people. Right? It's his promise to his people regardless of whether or not they hold up their end of the deal. Okay, now, God will discipline us when we fail to hold up our end of the deal. Right? And we'll talk about that more in a minute. God disciplines us whenever we run and, and flee and rebel and resist him. But um, the covenant remains because God keeps his promises. Right? Now, depending on your life experiences, maybe you're like, mm, pastor, I don't know about that. I see a lot of promises in the Bible that I haven't seen come to fruition. In fact, I think God's got some promises that he's given to me that I haven't really experienced yet, or, or maybe your experience is uh, God made this promise and, and he just flat out broke it, or at least it feels that way. And I would say, man, maybe that feels true from your limited human perspective. Okay, but, but God doesn't view things through your limited human perspective because God is not limited in any of the ways that you are. All right, so let me show you what I mean. Jump down to verse 8 for just a second. It's what Nehemiah says. He's kind of, it's almost like he's repeating God's word back to him. 
always kind of cracks me up when people pray and repeat God's word back to him like he doesn't know it. But beside the point, we'd probably be better, be better off to pray scripture, honestly. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Verse 8, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. And then he goes on and he talks about this promise that God made to Moses. Now, who did God announce the promise to? Moses. Who's on the scene now that God is fulfilling his promise? Not Moses. Right? Moses has been dead for a thousand years at this point. So the question is, did, okay, did God just not fulfill his promise to Moses? Or could it be that God fulfilled the promise he made to Moses, but maybe he fulfilled it in some ways that just weren't even on Moses' radar? Right, so when it comes to you and you think about maybe you got these promises, like you see these promises in the Bible, but you don't feel them yet. Is it that God hasn't made good on his promise? Or is it that God's just going to fulfill his promise in a way and on a time frame that's just like not even on your radar? Right? Listen, I'm going to, this is going to be, it's going to be blunt. If your entire experience or your entire understanding of who God is, is based on your life experiences, right? The, the 30, 50, 70 years that the Lord has given you to this point. If your entire understanding and knowledge of who God is, is based on that tiny frame, that, like that tiny window, like you will always have a, an anemic and shallow view of the God of the Bible. Because right? God works on time scales that are far greater than 30, 50, 70 years. Right? God's accomplishing things in his own time frame, in his own way, and he always makes good on his, his promise. This is why you've got to get in the word. Right? If, if your entire understanding of God is just based on kind of what you feel, one, that's dangerous because our feelings betray us. Right? You've got to get in the word to see that God is a God who keeps his covenant keeps his promises with his people. All right, now, second point. See, I told you, we're, we're moving fast. Second point is this, God hears his people. So the first was God keeps his promises. Two, God hears his people. Look at verse six. Nehemiah continues his prayer. He says, let your ear be attentive. In other words, hear, hear what I'm saying. And your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel. Right? In Nehemiah's brokenhearted like, desperation, right? he weeps and he mourns and he cries out to the God of heaven. Why? Because God hears his people. Right? I said this a couple of weeks ago when, uh, I believe it was a couple of weeks ago when we were in Second Chronicles talking about Jehoshaphat's prayer. Listen, prayer is not some sort of like coping mechanism or uh, some sort of therapeutic tool for us to just make us feel better when things are not great. Right? Prayer, prayer is not just something we put in our tool belt to break out like when things are going bad. Like prayer is us actually crying out to, calling out to, uh, and pleading with the God of the universe to, to do something, to show up, 
to act, to hear, to answer. That's what prayer is. And so to go back to Moses for a second, um, for the record, there's a lot of similarities between the books of Exodus and the book of Nehemiah, but that's a story for another day. But back to Moses, I think uh, one of the more powerful passages in the Bible it's, it's kind of subtle, like you don't really notice it until you actually stop and look at it, is in Exodus chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, I'm going to read it for you. But the people, for context, the people of Israel find themselves enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. And here's what Exodus 2 says. Verse 23, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Listen to this. The people groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Here it is, verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Right? God heard the prayers of his people. Right? And, and he remembered his promise to them. Right? That word covenant, it pops up there again. He remembered his promise to them. And, and I don't know if you know the story of Exodus, but God showed up. God did some stuff. Okay, and listen, spoiler alert for the book of Nehemiah, he's going to do it again because that's what he does. Right? He hears the prayers of his people. He makes good on his promises. Right? In his own sort of like mysterious way that I don't know how to fully explain to you this morning, he, he even intertwines like our prayers, our, our request to him with, with his Sovereign plans and purposes so that he makes good on his promises, oftentimes by answering our prayers. And it's bizarre. I don't know how it works. I'm not, I don't know the mind of God. Okay, but it's amazing. All right, so God keeps his promises. God hears his people. Right, we're feeling good about this. We're still on the ascent. I got to bring us down a little bit. Okay, back to verse 6. So let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Catch this. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. He says, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Right, here's my third point. God disciplines sin. Right, God disciplines sin. Another way to say it is sin always, always has consequences. Right, for the people of Israel here, in the context of Nehemiah, it's their rejection and, and rebellion against God um, that led to them being overthrown and sent into exile by their enemies. Right, which, by the way, is exactly what God promised. Like, that shouldn't have surprised them. God told them ahead of time, hey, you act a fool, I'm sending you out of here. And so sure enough, they acted a fool. And what did God do? He made good on his promise. See, maybe that's an important thing. God... God keeps his promises, not, a, not just like the promises that we love, and then we're like, yes, I claim that. Like even the warnings, God's going to make good on his promises, right? Because God, God disciplines sin. 
Right now, maybe you're thinking, gosh, that does not sound like a very loving God. Right? To allow his people, his children, his chosen nation to be overthrown and ran out of town by their enemies. Like, what kind of love is that? That's a fair question. Right? If you're reading your Bible honestly, like that's, God's not scared of your questions. That's a fine question to ask. What kind of God would, would allow his children to experience that? Okay, but the Bible also tells us in Hebrews that God disciplines those that he loves. Right? God disciplines those that he loves. Like, as the children of God, and especially as the children of God, like, we're going to feel the weight of our sin. Like, we're going to feel it when we stray and rebel and run and flee from the Lord. Like, when we try to to live outside of his good commands or we try to live outside of his good boundaries that he's created for us, like we're going to feel it. Right? We're going to feel that. That's why I try to remind you often that conviction is a good thing. We think of conviction as like a dirty word, like, oh, I don't want any of that. Like, no, conviction's a good thing. Like, what conviction says is there's still a God that loves you that's trying to, like, reel you back in before you are like so far gone. Right? Conviction is a gift from the Spirit. It's God saying, hey, get back in here. Right now, here's what I want to say. I'm talking about God disciplining his children, that sin has consequences. Here's what I say. If, if you are a professing believer, you're like, I'm in, I'm a Christian, right? I, I'm confident. If you're a professing believer that, that willfully continues in sin, I'm not talking about you got struggles. We all got struggles. But if you willfully continue in sin, this is what John would say in 1 John, talking about making a practice out of sinning. Like you just kind of like going the wrong way and loving it. Right? If you're a professing believer that continues willfully in sin with no remorse, with no repentance, uh, with no... Uh, res- you don't feel any resistance, you don't feel any conviction, you're just kind of like, man, I'm, like, if you just kind of feel like you're, you're rebelling and you're getting away with it and you like it, then I want to love you enough to tell you that that is a dangerous place to be. Right? To not feel any sort of weight of conviction, to not feel any sort of discipline from the Lord, like, that's a dangerous place to be. Right? The, the Lord disciplines his children. And if you're willing, willfully persisting in sin without feeling any of the weight of that, then, then here's, here's what it means. One of two things. Either one, God is a liar, or two, you're not one of his children. And I know you're like, gosh, pastor, that's a little bit of a hard word. Yeah, it is. Hard words make soft hearts, right? So, now what does this have to do with prayer? Okay, a couple things quickly. One, sin always, always creates distance and separation in a relationship. Okay, the, the exile itself. So back in the context of Nehemiah, we're talking about a people who were sent away from their homeland, away from Jerusalem, away from the land that God had given them, away from the place where God dwelled among his people. Like the exile itself is kind of this physical uh, like tangible representation that, that sin, rebellion, disobedience, results in separation. 
Okay, that's the reason Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. Sin results in a separation from God. Right? And, and to go back to where I started this morning, we're after growing in our relationship with God, uh, growing the, the depth of that relationship with God, because that's where prayer is going to grow and flourish, is in a, a deeper relationship with God. You will not have a deeper relationship with God if you are willfully persisting in sin. Right? Those, are, those are opposite things. Okay, and then here's the second thing. So one, sin creates separation in, in our relationship with God. And here's the other thing. Unrepentant sin hinders our prayers. Right, here's, it like, if I'm reading my Bible right, here, here's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 66, verse 18. He said, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, like if I had loved my sin and just given myself over to it, and thought, never thought twice about it, the Lord would not have listened. Like in, in, in some way, like our persistence in willful sin without any desire to change, without any desire to repent, without any conviction over that, like it, it hinders our, our prayer. Right, so, so, like, here's it. When we allow sin to persist and fester, we... Fester's a gross word, by the way. When we allow sin to persist and fester and grow, like we will not experience the fullness of the power and presence of God that we otherwise would. That's why, like we love the verse in James where, uh, I think it's 5, 16, 17, I don't know off the top of my head, where it's like the, the, the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, depending on what version you have, right? We, we love that verse. But literally the same verse, the sentence right before that says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. In other words, like if we want our prayers to accomplish much, like we want to, do, we want to pray with a pure heart before the Lord. Right? Confession and repentance are necessary stops along the path toward us experiencing the fullness of God's power and presence among us. That's individually, like, like in our lives as individuals. That's also corporately in us, in our, our lives as a church family. Like where, where we allow sin to grow and fester and, and I don't know why I keep saying that word. It makes me uncomfortable. Right? Where, we allowed, where we allow that to happen, like this church will never experience the fullness of the power and presence of God that we could. Right? So God hates sin. God will discipline sin. But I'm not, I'm not doing my job as a pastor if I don't give you the flip side of the same coin. And that's this. This is my fourth point. God is gracious and merciful toward sinners. All right, look back at, verse, back at verse 8. So Nehemiah is praying. He says, hey, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's what he did. But verse 9, but if you return to me, it's the idea of, of turning, repentance. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed, bought back. So despite their sin. Despite their rebellion, despite their long history of disobedience in the same direction, 
All right, their confession and repentance is, is met with and this outpouring of God's grace and mercy on them. Right, like all, all the years wasted. And you read through the Old Testament, there's a lot of years, man. All the years wasted in the pursuit of worthless idols and false gods. God looks at all of that. He looks at these chosen people, right, that he's, he's covenanted with. He looks at all of their sin and their shame and their rebellion and their disobedience. He's like, yeah, I know. I know. I see it. I know it. And I'll redeem that. All those wasted years, I'm going I'm to redeem those. I'll take care of that. I'm going to make good on my promise to you to restore you. Now, this was good news to the remnant here in the book of Nehemiah. And listen, this is good news for us. This is good news for us. So to connect this, again, back to prayer. Um, I think sometimes we don't pray, or sometimes the thing that kind of keeps us from praying in, in the ways that we, we could or should is because we're afraid that if we move towards God in that space, that like he's going to, like we're going to be reminded of the guilt of our own sin. Right, like let's, illustration. Uh, maybe some of you, you ever been out in public and you see someone that you know, but you're like, I'm not going to let them know that I'm here because then it'll, like a, it'll start a conversation and they're going to bring up some things that I don't really want to talk about. And so you do that thing where you like, turn the buggy around and go the other way down the aisle, right? Or now that we have cell phones, you can just kind of like pretend like you're in your phone or like y'all got the person you call when you need to be like, I need to pretend like I'm in a phone call right now so you don't have to engage that person. You guys are looking at me like you've never done this before. You've all done it. You've all done it, okay? Some of you have done it to me, right? You're like, oh, there's the pastor, right? I've definitely done it to some of you, Okay? I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. Um, we keep, try to keep a safe distance because we don't want to deal with whatever that thing is. Right? But we do that with God. Like we, we like try to keep, keep him at an arm's distance. Right? We want God for us. We want him on our side. But we don't want to get too close because then we've got to deal with that thing that we know he wants us to deal with. And all the while, like if you're a child of God, you've trusted in Jesus, if you're, all the while God sees you, and he's like, hey, get in here. Yeah, you've got some stuff. I know. I'm aware. Nothing's caught me off guard. I'm not surprised by it. Like, get in here. Get, let's deal with it. You don't have to keep your distance. Right? I've got way more grace and mercy than you have sin. So, so draw near. Right? This is why... The gospel is like the best news in the world. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, like if you, you believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave to pay the penalty for your sin, you've confessed, you've repented, you've asked Jesus to save you and forgive you. Like, if you're resting in that this morning, if you're a Christian, then all of God's wrath toward your sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross, right? 
All of it. Like there's none left. And so when you move towards God, you come to him in genuine confession and repentance. Like don't keep him at an arm's length, but you draw near to him. Like here's, here's what God doesn't do. He doesn't whip out some extra wrath that he had like stored up for this special occasion. No, he lavishes you in grace and mercy. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, God moves towards you. And he moves toward his blood-bought children and he lavishes them in grace and mercy. Listen, you cannot out the grace and mercy of God. And quite honestly, to think that you can is a little arrogant. Right? To think that something you've done somehow is the exception to everything that God has said in his word. Right? Like, so, so through faith in Christ, rather than like, keep God at an arm's length or turn the other way down the aisle, right? you're invited to draw near, to come into his presence. Right? Draw near with confidence that his grace and mercy is not only sufficient, but is actually available to you. Like it's one thing to say, oh yeah, God is gracious and merciful. It's another thing to actually move towards him and experience it for yourself. I just want to free you up this morning. Maybe some of you here in this morning, you're like, I've got some sin, I've got some struggles, I don't want to draw near because I'm scared. And I'm saying to you, God's waiting for you. Come. He's not thrown off by you. He's not disgusted by you. And if you're his child, like he, he looks at you, like, like if you've trusted in Jesus, when God looks at you, here's what he sees. Jesus' perfect righteousness imputed, that's a fancy word for just saying given to you. So when God looks at you, he's not seeing your sin, your brokenness, your shame, your struggles, your flaws. He's seeing Jesus' perfectness, perfectness, that's not even a word. He's seeing Jesus' perfection like in, in your place. So draw near. That wasn't even in my notes. I got off track. Here we go. So God keeps his promises. He hears his people. He disciplines sin and extends grace and mercy to sinners. And here's the last point, number five. God is all-powerful and always at work. Look at verse, we'll finish out here, verses 10 through 11. Nehemiah says, they are your servants, talking about the people of Israel, your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and, get, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So one, one of the things that's going to become more and more clear as we go through the book of Nehemiah is that like, Nehemiah is a man of action. Right? Like the dude gets stuff done. Okay, we're going to see he's going to like flex his sort of leadership capacity. He's going to show himself to be a, an effective leader, an effective administrator, an effective organizer, uh, like a great team builder and motivator of, of people to kind of get them all on the same page towards this work. I mean, he's like absolute boss when it comes to uh, leading this people to accomplish a, a really difficult task in a really efficient way. Okay, he's like, he's like the opposite of a politician. Okay, dude is an effective guy, okay? And yet, 
when he, when he hears this news that the walls are broken and the people are in trouble and shame, and like there's a lot of work to be done, what's the first thing he does? He doesn't start researching uh, contemporary architectural methods to rebuild a wall. Right? He, he's, he's not reading some books or, like I said, they have book scrolls. He's not reading some scrolls about organizational management, team building. Right? He's, he doesn't start throwing together some plans and policies and procedures. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of those things. But for as an effective a, as a leader as Nehemiah is going to prove himself to be, the first thing he does when he hears his heartbreaking, devastating news, when he realizes, like, I've got to do something, the first thing he does is he cries out to an omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign God. The one who, who he prays here will redeem his people by, the, uh, by his great power and his strong hand. He cries out to the one who is in control of all things at all times and actually has the capacity to grant Nehemiah not only success uh, in sight of the king, which is going to be next week, but also uh, grants him the power to actually accomplish this great task before him. And so really, this is kind of where I want to land the plane this morning. Like Nehemiah is going to set out in the chapters uh, for us in the weeks ahead. He's going he's to rebuild a broken city, restore a broken people to the right worship of God. And he begins where every good work of restoration begins. And that's by seeking the Lord. And so my question to you this morning is, like, what do I do with all this? As I would just ask you, what in your life needs to be rebuilt, needs to be restored? Right, what is it in your life that you would look at and you say, I mean, that's an area that needs, that needs to be strengthened? Or maybe it's just like in rubble and it needs to be completely rebuilt. Right, maybe, it's your, maybe it's your own relationship with the Lord. Right, maybe you just kind of feel like you're in sort of a, stale season. I don't know if you've ever had one of those. You're just kind of like, like things aren't bad, but things are just kind of like, mm. or maybe your relationship with the Lord's just kind of stale, not a lot of depth or, or vibrancy, or maybe it's like we talked about. Maybe there's some, some sin that needs to be confessed and repented of that's, that's causing some separation, some distance. Or maybe it's not your relationship with the Lord. Maybe it's Things at home are broken. Maybe your relationship with your spouse or your children is just fractured and in desperate need of repair. Right? Maybe, like we can be honest in here, maybe just your own faith needs to be rebuilt. Right? Not that you've abandoned the faith or like turned your back on God or deconstructed or whatever the popular thing is these days. I'm not talking about that, but maybe like just because of your experiences, like you're just having a really hard time believing the promises of God, trusting that he's actually good. Right, maybe that's where you are this morning. 
And we could, we could go on, and I don't, I don't know the, the details of your lives, some of them, but not all of them. But I would just ask, what's, like, what's broken in your life? What needs to be rebuilt and restored? Really, my prayer after, after last week's sermon and kind of heading into this week is that uh, the Lord would reveal to us like, where these places are. Like, where are the places that need to be rebuilt are restored right? in, our, in our lives, um, in our homes, in our community, in our church. And I'm, I'm trusting that he's going to do that, whether he reveals something to you like amazingly this morning, that'd be awesome. Maybe this week, Lord, it's, as you spend time with the Lord, um, he'll begin to reveal that to you. But that's been my prayer, is that he would begin to show us these places that are, that are broken. But, but as he does, our first response is, is not to kind of act in our own wisdom and our own knowledge and our own strength. Okay, that would be a really bad way to go about it. And our first response is to bring these things to the Lord, to kind of lay them at the feet of our Heavenly Father and say, Lord, these things are broken. This relationship is broken. This area of my life is broken. Maybe the Lord begins to convict you of sin. You're like, God, I'm broken. And we would lay it before the Lord and say, I, I can't rebuild this on my own. I can't fix it myself. I need help. We need help. Right? That's our first response. And it's not because that's what Nehemiah did and we should be like Nehemiah. And that's not, that's not false, but that's not our primary reason for laying it before God. Our primary reason for bringing these areas before God is because of who God is, the God who keeps his promises, who hears his people, who is gracious and merciful towards sinners like us, and who actually has the power and capacity to rebuild and restore broken things. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and... Uh, Lord, I, I pray just kind of this morning that, I, that I, as I have the last week or so, that you would just begin to reveal in us areas in our lives that are in need of rebuilding or in need of repair or in need of strengthening. Or, um, Lord, maybe things that we've, we've never actually like stopped and thought about. We just kind of put on a a tough face and go on about our, our day because that's just all we know to do. I pray, Lord, that, that this morning and the days ahead that you would reveal some of these places to us. And then I pray, Father, that as you bring those things to mind, that we would have the courage to actually admit our inability and our weakness, admit that we are not all-knowing, that we are not all-powerful, that we are not always in control of everything and that we need your help. Lord, I pray that as you reveal these things, maybe you would reveal areas where we need to confess and repent of different things, different sins, different acts of disobedience towards you. Maybe it's, Lord, maybe it's something that has just been so habitual for so long, like we've just kind of forgotten that it is actually rebellion against you and it's disobedience to your word. Pray you would, you would convict us of those things this morning. 
And then, Father, I pray that you would begin a work of rebuilding and restoration in those places. Lord, that the, the things that you reveal as broken in need of repair, that you would quickly move in because you are gracious and kind and merciful and you hear your people and you're, you're actually powerful enough to bring about change. I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would do that. So Lord, we love you. We pray and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.